and good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening whatever the case may be on this rotating globe spinning around the sun is something like 18 and a half miles per second if you sit real still i used to say that in the planetarium and the kids actually um, they kept reporting negative results and then we would tell them why that would not work welcome to uh, sunny night i'm so sorry about uh, last night but uh when those things hit, there's only one graceful thing you can do. It's kind of like uh, after you tried everything, you bow to the inevitable. We're going to recycle last night's show, which is all about uh, what's going on around Bill Shatner and a whole bunch of other interesting stuff for next Saturday. So make a note on Halloween Eve, Saturday the 30th, um, we will be doing the implications of Star Trek. I actually found a very interesting quote from my old friend Kraft Ericke from the New York Times, which kind of puts what Bill is doing um, on various network shows into perspective. And that will lead us in some other directions. Uh, I'm going to talk again about Bill Nelson next week. I'm going to talk about him tonight in a moment or two. So you might want to uh, kind of put on your calendar next weekend because Saturday and Sunday are going to take us in some very interesting, and may I say, hyper-dimensional directions. Tonight, um, I want to lead off, obviously, with news. Item number one, for those of you who are new to the show, the way you find us is you look for the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. Click on that, then click on tonight's banner, The Consciousness of Crows for Sunday, October 24th. That will take you to the guest page. And uh, right under there, you will see fast links to my items and Dr. Grossinger's and uh, click on my name and that will take you to my section of radio with pictures and item number one of course again as it has been for the last month or so we're looking at La Palma and I don't want to bore you with all the reasons you should be looking carefully at La Palma but you should because things are kind of getting interesting there's increased seismic activity um, there's increased uh, uh, swelling of the volcano, and you know what uh, could happen in the worst, worst, worst case scenario, which, even though it's a low probability, put this thing on your phone, have it ring, uh, have it alert you if there's a major seismic event, because that could be, as Carl used to say, bad for beagles and begonias all around the North Atlantic Basin. Moving on. Um, as you know, if you've been anywhere but on a small atoll in the southwestern Pacific over the last several days, uh, a few days ago we had a terrible tragedy here in the Land of Enchantment uh, over by Santa Fe. Uh, Alec Baldwin's latest movie, <clears throat> a western being shot on a ranch just over the hill from me, uh, a movie called Rust, had an extraordinary, horrible tragedy where... Baldwin was handed by an assistant director a gun, which he presumed was not hot, as the term goes. Uh, the associate director, assistant director, told him it was a coal gun, meaning it was not loaded either with ammo or with blanks. And somehow, we don't know how yet because the investigation is ongoing, um, he wound up shooting his cinematographer and his director who was standing behind the cinematographer, and she died. 
And, of course, it's an incredibly, almost impossible-to-imagine tragedy. There's all kinds of investigations. Next week, next Saturday, we will have uh, Robert Mitchell, who was a friend of ours and a director of feature films and commercials and uh, well-known in Hollywood. He's worked with uh, uh, major directors, including on the uh, uh, recent film uh, filming of Midway. And so I'm going to be asking him at the start of the show next week about safety on set and why there are guns that can be loaded with live ammo allowed on set anymore. And we'll get into that in great detail because obviously we're now looking at shooting movies not just on Earth but in orbit. We'll have an update on the Russians and the filming of their feature film called The Challenge with... uh, a very interesting actress and a producer-director. And apparently when they were up there for 12 days, they inveigled the entire crew of the space station to be involved in the shoot. And, of course, in a space environment where you have, uh, you're in a pressure vessel, kind of like being in an aircraft at 40,000 feet, the last thing you would want would be a projectile weapon And so we will discuss uh, safety protocols in space as well as on the ground. And that will lead us into some other interesting things about uh, the recent wave of commentary regarding shooting movies about space in space. And I'll bet even Tom Cruise's name will come up. Item number three. Now, this one is where things get really interesting, particularly in terms of what we're going to be talking uh, to with our guest tonight. Bill Nelson, who, as you know, is the current head of NASA, and when the president made him the current head of NASA about uh, six months ago, I said this could be really interesting because Bill Nelson, former senator, Democratic senator from the state of Florida, is one of a handful of civilians who actually, even before Shatner, made it into space. Now, Nelson was in the uh, shuttle, and I believe it was the Columbia, I think. Uh, Could have been Challenger. Uh, It's so far back in time, many, many years ago, that I forget. And I did not have time to look it up. But anyway, he flew, and it probably was Challenger, because he flew on the flight just before the Challenger disaster. So if they had slipped his flight by one mission, then Bill Nelson would not be in the news to be talked about tonight. Why is he in the news? Well, if you click on item number three, which is a Twitter connection, a couple days ago, Bill Nelson made some very interesting comments at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. And he talked about having discussed the UAP phenomenon, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which of course is a code name in the Navy now for UFOs. You know, talk about rebranding. Do they really think they're fooling anybody? Yes, they do. Some of them are that dumb. Um, Anyway, to give it a gloss of more credibility, they've tried to change ufology to (laughs) upology. That doesn't scan. Anyway, the comments he makes is that he's talked to pilots, the pilots who have actually seen and photographed from from the FLIR and the gun camera footage, these extraordinary vehicles making incredible maneuvers uh, like falling or diving from 80,000 feet 
just above the surface of the ocean in seconds. Imagine the G-forces. Imagine the propulsion capabilities. And again, these are objects that have no aerial aerodynamic surfaces. They don't have wings. They don't have tails. They don't have rudders. They have nothing that would be identifiable as a conventional aircraft. Their performances, of course, are totally beyond the realm of what we think of as current physics. So Nelson, remember, appointed by Biden as the current head of NASA, a senator who flew in space. And that's really important because, as we've heard over the last few days from Bill Shatner, uh, being in space, you uh, sometimes manifest this what's called overview effect where your perspective on a whole bunch of things that are down to earth changes. Well, Bill Nelson was talking very candidly about the UAP slash UFO phenomenon and the fact that he's talked to these pilots, he's personally debriefed them, he talked about visual sightings, the camera footage, the radar contact, so you have multiple sensor confirmation, there's something out there beyond the cockpit. Remember, these guys are in F-18s, and they can only loiter for like an hour, and then they have to go back to the carriers to refuel. Well, these objects, whatever they are, they just kind of hung around until the F-18s came back, like they were um, parading or demonstrating or having a power demonstration before the fleet, actually more than one fleet. There were two aircraft battle groups on both coasts from 2004 to 2014 to now, and Nelson said that there have been over 300 recorded incidents, which is a number which is kind of impressive. But the most interesting thing he said when he started talking about who they are, he said, we hope, and I'm paraphrasing because you can you know, look at the actual video yourself, he said, I hope they're not a terrestrial antagonist, but if they're not, that means they're from someplace else. In other words, they're potentially extraterrestrial. And again, you know me. I look at politics and conversations at multi-levels and through a kind of an Emily Dickinson lens, you know, the tell-all-the-truth-but-tell-it-slant school of uh, talking about reality. And for Bill Nelson, the current head of NASA, to come within a whisker of saying, bluntly, <clears throat> aliens are real, because he's got real hard physical evidence from multiple sources, who he has talked to directly, and they have obviously shown him evidence directly, as the current head of NASA, this is not trivial. It's one more step down the road to inevitable disclosure. The question is, disclosure of what? Anyway, um, there's a couple more items that I'll get to as we proceed through the show. So what I'd like to do now is introduce my guest of the morning, Dr. Richard Grossinger, who, as you know, full disclosure, <clears throat> was my publisher of The Monuments of Mars in all its iterations going back many, many, many years. And we're now in discussion for bringing forth our new book, our latest book on what's on Mars and uh, other places in the solar system. Richard has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan. He is currently um, heading an imprint out of uh, 
um, uh, Inner Traditions, which is a major publisher. <clears throat> when he comes on, he'll tell me the name of the imprint because I've promptly forgotten. It's sacred something or other, but uh, he will he will uh, get to that momentarily. Grosinger's writing can be divided into three overlapping categories. General experimental prose, books on topics in science viewed historically, cross-culturally, epistemologically, esoterically, and in terms of pop culture, and autobiographical memoirs. All of the works arise through a literary sensibility. And I could go on, but you can read all the rest of it there on the Other Side of Midnight website. So without further ado, Richard, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Thanks, Richard. Well, let's see, where should we dive in? Um, before airtime, we were having this very interesting off-air off discussion, and I, I, I guess I'd like to pick it up there, because you and I were having this very interesting argument, and I was arguing in favor of empirical evidence, and you basically said something, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that nothing really can be proven. So why don't we start there? Okay, I, I wasn't so much saying that nothing can be proven or speaking against empirical evidence. I was just, as is my own nature in such discussions, reckoning with the fact that you and I have been talking since I think it's roughly 1986 about anomalous phenomena, beginning with the face on Mars, but covering pretty much of the full range of things people talk about and although we have many points of agreement, we do have fundamental points of disagreement that aren't that easily categorized <laughs> or identified. And this came up because being on the other side of midnight, literally, I'm in Maine, is not my favorite thing. I, I like to go to bed well before midnight. And I was basically making the argument that it really, I really it really wasn't necessarily an ideal thing for you and me to talk because we tended to talk around each other and maybe it was better if I just went to sleep at a normal time and <laughs> you basically talked me into coming on the show from the standpoint that we really share interests in these topics. I, I struggle actually to, to really put a pointer on what is the di difference and what is the issue. Um, it's not that I don't think that there's empirical evidence. I think that you and I disagree about what constitutes empirical evidence. And as you were saying before in relation to um, UFOs and, or UAPs, evidence of what? Um, like I, I would go back, I guess, to our starting point, the face on face and monuments on Mars and all the subsequent Martian um, what would I call it, Martian um, um, geography and phenomenology and the rest. And I, I like it all and find all of it interesting. And then the whole other range of anomalous phenomena I find interesting. But I, I don't think that most of it um, comes down to, to a scientific definition or that that's the goal. I think that I think that science as we know it is intrinsically limited to a kind of um, formulaic mindset about what reality is to begin with. And 
my own belief is just that many of these phenomena um, occur in ways that's, that, that can't really be touched by science as we presently practice it and, and understand it. And when I write, I try and find language um, and um, kind of images and, and um, analyses that get at other ways of looking at it. Um, you read, God, that, that was supposed to be a pretty old description. I posted somewhere of my work. But I do use a literary sensibility in the sense that, um, as you said of Emily Dickinson, I mean, I would think of Melville and John Donne and Shakespeare and all of those people um, as delving into, the, into mysterious phenomena. And, um, and I share the idea that we approach it by a kind of magical um, um, penetrating of it through our own imagination and through our own psyches. And I'm interested in science too, and I'm interested, obviously, I'm interested in, in Mars, in animal intelligence, in aliens, in um, um, spirit survival, and all those things. I'm interested in how they might have scientific um, explanations. But where I think you and I tend to end up in different places is I don't think we're anywhere near solving any of those riddles in scientific terms. And uh, I was teasing you, I think showman that you are, <laughs> you build up big crescendos and produce something which you call evidence and which I call really nice metaphors. You, you are a wonderful metaphor maker. And, um, and that's just the difference. I, 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 it's like, um, I like I like the way words will pop up. The word rabbit hole is the new, one of the new popular words. I think that um, you, you that they're all rabbit holes. You know, you go down them like Alice, and then, well, what do you have? Um, you have a lot of really interesting, um, um, ex existentially real phenomena. But what they are when you come back and try and put them in terms of Newton or Heisenberg or Einstein or Stephen Hawking or Richard Hoagland, I don't, I, I don't know that you can do that um, or that I care that much about doing it. So um, I'll stop here and let you take the thread where you want to take it. Well, to me, it's really important because the, the implication, the social implication of what we found on the moon and on Mars will change everything. And, you know, it's kind of like Sagan said to me a long time ago and a bunch of other reporters when we were sitting in on a briefing about the Apollo astronauts and the quarantine procedures and keeping any microorganisms that the Apollo astronauts might scoop up or would cling in the dust to their suits from coming back to Earth and destroying the biosphere. Some reporter, wasn't me, asked him, well, Dr. Sagan, how much should we spend of NASA's budget to protect, you know, the biosphere of the Earth. And Sagan had this very interesting uh, uh, comeback. He said, well, what you want to do is create an equation where on the one hand, and he literally demonstrated, he says, you have the worth of the Earth. 
everything we care about, all our history, all our dreams, our heritage, everything we've ever known, and that's on this side. And he waved his hand. And then he said, on the other hand, and then he brought out the right hand, he said, there's the probability, which is that there will be something on the moon that the Apollo crews could bring back that could destroy everything we hold dear on Earth. And he said, we can't really put numbers on this yet, but he said, if you think of it in terms of the Earth, everything is a huge number, the worth of the Earth. And the probability that there's gonna be organisms that could be brought back and infect the Earth has got to be, given everything we know, a very tiny number. So he said, you multiply the big number by the tiny number, and that gives you a ballpark number for how much you should spend. And to me, if you adapt Sagan's reasoning, what is the worth of finding out the human race is not alone, that we're surrounded by extraordinary scientific and epistemological and philosophical treasures beyond calculation. Everything we ever have asked has probably been answered and is in some library, given that we think that those cultures may have had to pass information along in some storageable medium like a library. If we could find one of those libraries, it would give us access to unimaginable potentials that may extend back maybe billions of years in a galaxy which is 13.7 billion years old, according to the current methods of, of kind of, you know, deriving at that number. Now, what is the probability that that is going to happen? Well, back when you and I first had the conversation, I would have said it was a very, very small number. That number has grown extraordinarily, exponentially in the last 20, 30, 40 years to where now on every image that the current Perseverance rover is sending back, not just Hoagland and the Enterprise mission are seeing amazing things, but people all over the world we've never talked to. There are websites, thousands of websites devoted to artifacts that NASA has been suppressing. It's become an incredibly interesting and vibrant cottage industry with thousands, if not maybe tens of thousands of participants sharing and posting and making YouTube videos and pointing out, you know, how to download the originals from NASA, et cetera, et cetera, to where I would now say the number on the right-hand side, the probability is well over 50%. And the worth, of course, has only gone up because the more we see, the more we realize we're not looking at just one extraordinary ancient civilization, but more than one. And maybe there was diffusion of information from cultures in the galaxy. Maybe they weren't just homegrown efforts, but maybe there was communication between this system and many, many others over an extraordinary period of time. So the worth of what we're proposing is huge. The, the potential, the probability that we're right and not wrong is not insignificant anymore, and that I think should determine how much we as a culture, as a civilization, as a space agency a la 
Bill Nelson's NASA should put in to determining the worth of this potential stunning treasure. And to me, that says we should be pursuing with all alacrity to find out as much as possible to nail it down, to go from a potential to a certainty. And so my question to you is, what would you need to find out or know to convert your interest into a certainty that this is a reality? Well, (laughs) I just, um, what would I say? Um, You know, way back when I got involved with you in publishing the Monuments of Mars in the first and then later versions, um, what, what struck me most was that you had created a new genre. Um, it wasn't completely new, but it, you had done it so profoundly and in so much detail that it really was new. You had written something that was um, better than science fiction from an imagination standpoint, um, at least in the in in the science part of science fiction, because you had taken real um, real information uh, out of um, out of off of a real object, and it started with Mars, and then it's, it went to other celestial bodies, and you made a credible story out of it, a credible narrative, and I don't think that that's changed. Um, I don't see that there is the sort of evidence that would um, lead people to um, agree um, that this 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 has been solved, that there is evidence. I'm not convinced that there's anything on Mars. Um, I'm interested in it, and and I, I I will believe anything at the moment I first see it before. I have a chance to reconsider. But, you know, there's not even total agreement that COVID exists. Um, so it's it's very hard. Uh, there's much more likelihood that COVID exists than that the Martians exist. Um, and um, I, I think in order to really have that discussion, you'd have to have somebody on from NASA who is honest and who doesn't agree that the photos show that and then balance that against um, this cottage industry of people who are finding evidence of life on Mars and then have that discussion and see where it leads and listen to the evidence on both sides. But we can't just sit on one side of it knowing that there's a huge other side and say that we're over the finish line on it because we're not, we're. Oh, I think we're much closer to over the finish line. In fact, we are over the finish line um, on UFOs. To go back to the old uh, terminology, they do exist. They are real. It has been acknowledged and admitted. We don't know what they are. I mean, collectively, we don't know what they are. Individually, we may have um, some some f- formed ideas about what they are. Um, but as a civilization, we don't know what they are. Um, but we do know that they exist. The, the, that finish line has been crossed. 
So again, I'm going to stop and leave the thread for you. Well, I think it's a very important place to stop because we are literally at the bottom of the hour. So without further ado, let me uh, let me do this. Um, my guest this morning is Dr. Richard Grossinger. As you can tell, we are having a very interesting um, difference of opinion. And I think uh, rather than beat this poor horse to death, I am in the land of enchantment, of course. When we come back, I'm going to pick up on the segue between his current book, Bottoming Out the Universe, and the very interesting topics which I want to talk about in terms of the new book, which comes out in the first quarter of next year, which um, there are segues. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison's a poison. Now this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the global list have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155, but anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland. And of course our right brain. So what happens is excess deuterium makes us sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it. So you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. We don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool 
that the globalists, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, October 24th, 2021. My uh, guest this morning is Richard Grossinger. Full disclosure, Richard is an old friend, a colleague, someone I love to disagree with because he has, in his disagreements, he has depth. I mean, a lot of people I disagree with and they're very superficial. Richard is not superficial. Uh, We may disagree. In fact, I think we disagree on a number of points, but at least we disagree collegially. And I will hold out the opportunity that at some point, one of us can admit we're wrong. Okay, um, let's go to Bottoming Out the Universe and then the new book, which is what, Dream Times and Thought Forms. And I believe you said in your introduction to the new book that these form a kind of a pattern that you've been writing a series of inquiries into the very eclectic subject matter of all these books. Do you want to give us a kind of a meta pattern for what you're aiming to do? <laughs> yeah, by the way, I'm glad you dropped the doctor. I'm I'm old fashioned in that way. I think you should only call people doctor if they're medical doctor. Oh, that brings up the whole conversation about Jill Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, okay, well, I don't know how I... Okay, I'll accept that. You that are does. an anthropologist. You do have a doctorate, so you yeah. are in a club where you are allowed to I'm say... I'm allowed to, but uh, I'm also allowed to reject it So if I'm in the club. So. Well, come on. I've known you so long that I even can call you other than Richard. But anyway, yeah. let's, let's get okay. back to... Let's All get, right, well, I, we don't have to go down, go down that road. So what... I, it's kind of, I think kind of you look back at your own wake to understand what you what you were doing. When I started off, um, and I was still a teenager when I started off, I began writing as as a way to um, to kind of I was imitating the great books that I read, began reading in high school. But I was influenced too. I was in um, for all of childhood. I was in uh, in in psychoanalysis from age eight, and doing like symbols and dream interpretation. And then starting around the middle of high school, people began getting involved in in tarot and Jung and the poetry of Charles Olson, and all of that created not just a mystery realm but tools and techniques to get at the mystery realm 
And at a certain point, I just started writing in earnest. And for a great many years, probably into my early 30s, I simply wrote what I called experimental prose. And it had a life of its own there. I did many, many books, I think as many as 20 books in that period of time, um, that didn't have any particular topic. They were just about everything. And they went by the principle, um, almost that you were channeling it, but you weren't channeling it from an entity, an, an exogenous entity. You were channeling it from the kind of the, the mystery realm that you shared with all the writers in, in the lineage, uh, in your own lineage and in all the other languages. And then starting in 1977, when I moved from Vermont to California and stopped teaching college and was trying to think of other ways to earn a living, I began what became over the next 20 plus years writing books on in retrospect, I see four separate topics. Um, the first one was alternative and non-Western medicine, shamanism, healing. The second one is the one where you and I intersected uh, initially, um, astronomy, cos cosmology, um, and, I th and that includes sort of physics and all I called that book the night sky, and by that I meant every imaginable night sky, since the night sky is um, is sort of is sort of the boundary of a system. What form what forms our sky doesn't necessarily form the sky of other creatures or entities in other dimensions. And then the third topic was embryology, biology. Um, and that was somewhat shaped by my own inquiries uh, into cranial sacral therapy and other healing systems that taught me how to how to use energy itself to how to move from kind of um, uh, like like studying forms of massage and then realizing uh, studying shiatsu doing Tai Chi and so forth, and then realizing there was an energetic component. And at the same time, asking the question, where does that energetic component enter into the way in which we get bodies to begin with? How are these bodies formed? And I found an astonishing lack of literature on embryology and still think that's true. And I did two significant books um, in, in the 80s, up until really the early 2000s, the first one called Embryogenesis and the second one called Embryos, Galaxies, and Sentient Beings. And then I switched to consciousness itself. It just suddenly struck me that I should be uh, addressing the mystery of the fact that we had conscious, that, that we not only had consciousness, but we had personal identities. And I opened that by doing a three volume work that I ended up calling Dark Pool of Light. The first volume simply on sort of the neuroscience, physics, biology, and, the, and, and even philosophy of consciousness. And the second volume on the psychic and psycho-spiritual aspects of consciousness. I was still living in California then and studying at the Berkeley Psychic Institute where I realized that energies existed off the body too 
And so I integrated that into my inquiry. And when I, and then I was worked was, for what, a while what, on. What, was that go. the institute run by Arthur Young? No, no, the, um, that no. Arthur Young was in. He he had interest in the topics, but uh, he wasn't. He was more involved in astrology than he was in actual direct psychic work. Um, I I I only studied there for like a year and a half because it was it was awfully. I mean, I learned a lot, but it was cult like. Um, it it was. Um, it was. It had. It had sort of Scientology like. He called elements. it, I think, the Institute for the Study of Consciousness. I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's different. You know, that that it's true. I, we both went to I think meetings at Arthur Young's house. What's funny about that, is I just this week, I met another Arthur Young. Um, oh my. For the first time, his name is David Delorme. And he lives only about 20 minutes from one of my houses in Maine. I'm in I'm at my Portland house now. I'm mostly living in Bar Harbor, but in Portland, there's this guy who's very similar to Arthur Young, um, in that he's an inventor, a technologist, a, a contributor to the whole development of the digital world. Yeah, we should mention but, who Arthur Young was. He was an engineer, incredible engineer. He literally was the inventor of the Bell helicopter at the you know, Bell Aerospace Systems, that eventually became known, which, uh, you know, he had a hard science background. And for him to get into consciousness, I always thought was intriguing. Did you know, Richard, right. that I gave the first public presentation on the monuments of Mars at the Institute? Under the tutelage, I can of believe that. I mean, it was it was like walking distance from where you live, yep. so why yep. not? Um, <laughs> and uh, and what was what? How I understood it was that Arthur made so much money from his uh, so much ongoing money from his helicopter patent that he never had to work again. So he um, he decided decided to devote himself to the study of consciousness. And he was particularly intrigued by astrology um, and uh, spent huge amounts of time trying to find astrological correlations and then to explain them. Um, hmm. uh, so anyway, to just finish my own thread, um, I, um, I, bottoming out the universe was a continuation of my examination of consciousness but it also was the first book in which I tried to bring together all the threads I've been working with um, because for the first time I could see them all. And by the way, the uh, I'm reminded because that was the first book uh, of mine done by Inner Traditions that the imprint I'm curating there is called Sacred Planet Books. And oh, I haven't you. counted recently, but I've brought in about... I don't know, at least 60, I think maybe even closer to 80 books in a year and a half working there. And I don't mean that as some sort of acclaim to my curation, as that whatever magic is in the noosphere is just sort of driving all these amazing people who are connecting to me out of the blue through networks that I didn't even know existed. And uh, and I'm just find myself there and 
pulling the threads together, writing them up and sending sending them in and and um, building this list. But anyway, after I did, well, actually, you'll laugh at this. After I did bottoming out the universe and I was working for for inner traditions, I actually got involved in this book. It was a series of stages that led me back to essentially the themes of bottoming out the universe. I was actually started out trying to help them with a book um, that wasn't on my list about Donald Trump and chaos magic and how he used chaos magic in winning the presidency and in developing sigils and egregores like, like MAGA and so forth. And I thought that was a fascinating topic and it drove me who had uh, studied both magic and shamanism over my whole lifetime and all different forms from uh, tarot cards to, you know, but d doing grounding cords at Berkeley Psychic Institute. It led me to really read what was chaos magic. And once I got into it, I, I saw the link between chaos magic and QAnon, which I thought of as a cargo cult or ghost dance in a sense that intersected with chaos magic in an interesting way. And by then we were in COVID time. So I added COVID to the, to the list. And then I expanded it in a couple of other directions with going into the whole cancel culture identity politics mess. And I did a book, um, on all of that and presented it to my own publisher and they said, couldn't you frame it in a psycho-spiritual context? Um, because it was, a, it was much more a political, anthropological book. So I went back and I built a kind of um, bubble around it that was used other things, like, for instance, the, the intelligence of both crows and octopuses, which I had recently discovered, or new information on UFOs, um, or rethinking um, the whole issue of spirits and spirit communication and um, communication with those who've crossed from here. And so I built that framework around it and everybody liked the framework. And then they said, well, we don't need all this politics because that's <laughs> not what we publish. So actually I'm, I'm finishing up tomorrow, making a separate book out of that, which is twice as long and that one has the awkward working title of um, of weaponized information, technocracy, and the return of the Tower of Babel. And I have a subtitle of um, Trumpism, QAnon, COVID-19, um, and the left hand of – I think I have chaos magic in there too, and the left hand of God. And um, – and that book, I've said, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with that public, publication-wise, but the book that we're talking about, ultimately, I rooted back in in bottoming out the universe and decided to just, I mean, I just saw where I was, and I had a much deeper framework of that. Maybe it happens as we get older that we just keep looking and looking and we see more. I mean, for instance just on the tiny point that you've put uh, uh, sort of nailed the show to I like, why didn't I know that crows were so interesting? I mean, I sort of knew it, but 
I mean, I throw food out in the backyard in Bar Harbor, make a compost heap, and just sit there and watch the crows and listen to them and just think about they're talking and they're they're holding conversations that have that have much more meaning than I ever gave to um, to animal talk. And I, and then, I mean, the, well, I think so many of us saw my octopus teacher and that that opened up that whole realm. And I was thinking, why I always knew octopuses were like complicated, but I didn't realize that they were that complicated, that they, um, and that there's so many different kinds of them and that you actually have an invertebrate, an invertebrate brain that's grown out into these eight eight um, separate um, centered beings that can also change themselves. They have layers of color cells so they can turn themselves into paintings. They also have these cells that can change the texture of their bodies and they can imitate pretty much anything. And it's like, wow. When you say like, imitate, you mean a, a kind of a chameleon-like blend yeah, into the background. Yeah, biomimicry and whatever they need to in order to hide. And um, and it's it, it's like um, that that alone just opened me to thinking much more <clears throat> about how intelligent the other intelligences around us are and with almost unstated, what a deep rut we're in in our own civilization which is we've tossed into this algorithm. I mean, I, I think of the algorithm as being what, whereas it's very effective in creating this technocracy, it's, it's, it's merely thrown us into this limiting mode of thought that's driving pretty much everything, everything that's, um, that's sort of concrete scientific economic political about about the current civilization now i'm sort of off this is how i write i'm off in many directions <laughs> at once to me the interest i mean i have friends who say how could you even say the word QAnon, let alone write about it um i have a, a kind of old friend who's a notable science uh, novelist and science fiction writer jonathan latham who says I can't even say the word, but in fact, when you have such a tension between an invisible world and a world which you're, whatever that was between segments that you were running, a world, uh, I don't wanna get off into the uh, one world government uh, um, insanity there, but I mean, we could, but let's not. But when you have um, such a breakdown of meanings and a conflict of paradigms, how could you not have the arising of essentially a sort of ghost dance cargo cult form, which is attempting to get at the truth, even by creating misinformation intentionally, um, as if to say that the information you're generating is even if it's scientific, so-called scientific, it's wrong by dint of the fact that it's politicized before it even comes out the gate. Um, so we're gonna fight back by using disinformation to fight information. 
And that to me is interesting because it points to the greater depth in the psyche of the civilization. Um, and, and we don't even these days get much into the psyche of the civilization because everybody's on the surface, polarized and arguing about things on the surface. And Can I ask you for go a ahead. Okay, your turn. Sorry. Do you know who I am? Um, no, you're another voice. Okay. I'm, I'm Keith Morgan. I worked for ABC News for 30 years as an electronics technician. I worked with Ted Koppel in Nightline. Um, I guess you don't know about the Morgan curve, which is my accidental discovery after NASA manipulated the camera crew that was supposed to be out at Goddard with me, along with the rest of the media in 1988. And that's when I made the discovery by accident. And if you go to YouTube or you go to Google and you put the Morgan curve in quotes, um, watch the video, the, the Morgan curve, and watch the, it's only about five minutes, and then watch the explanation, which is more than 15 minutes. If you look at that math, which is simple high school geometry, okay, and you see all the coincidences, the exponential spacings, all of the stuff that can't be accidental in the same area where that alleged face is at, and then you look at all the other stuff involved, if you still have doubt that the stuff sitting on Mars is not artificial, then something's wrong, okay? Because what did the lady in Hidden Figures say, the mathematical genius? She said, math is dependable. Math is true. It tells us the truth. And all the stuff that Richard and Dr. Mark Carlotto and Earl Torn pulled out of Sidonia was on a more complicated level than the simplicity of what I discovered and then Earl expanded on it. And he couldn't expand on it unless what I was looking at was real because there's no way in heck he could manipulate those structures on that planet to fit the scenario that we discovered. And I know, I don't believe, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that those artifacts sitting on the surface of Mars in the Sidonia region are 100% artificial. Somebody built them. The face is not a, a bunch of rocks because NASA took a better picture of it after they got shown up by the European Space Agency by taking a better picture. But both of these rocket science engineers uh, organizations, they put these pictures out upside down and said, oh, look, see, there's nothing there. But if you rotate it around where it's oriented correctly, the other half of the face is not a head on. It is a profile of a face. And that is in the Morgan curve animation, the, the one that's not the explanation. You look at it, you'll see, I outline it. There's no way for all of these details to be in that image if it's just a trick of light and shadow. The trick here is that NASA has been lying to us the whole time and they've been telling us, oh no, there's nothing there. And they know, because if I found the curve and Earl found the X and Y axis to the curve, I know they're not that stupid that they couldn't have found it themselves. They know what they're looking at, but there's a game on that's been here ever since 1947 with Roswell going, oh no, so we're, we're alone. Nothing's going on. We're not alone in this universe. We've never have been alone. There have been people here with technologies well advanced than where we are right now. And it's hidden in all of the stuff in plain sight 
in all the architecture that's thousands of years old that they wouldn't want to admit to. And it's sitting right in front of us. It's always been in front of us. But they've been telling us, oh, no, 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 because they have an alternative agenda. They know that there's intelligent entities out there that have been visiting this planet for thousands of years. And we're just now growing up, getting out of the dark ages. But they're going to keep pushing us at us that this is not true because they want to keep control. They, that's the way they control the masses, or they figure this is the way to control the masses. But now the Navy has dropped the bomb and said, oh, we don't know what these things are. So now they're playing dumb. They know what they are. They've had anti-gravity probably from the 50s. But they've got the ability to travel amongst the stars, according to Ben Rich, and take E.T. home. But these things are locked up in black projects that are so locked up in these projects that it'd take an act of God to get them released, according to Ben Rich. So we are at a point now that either everybody grows up and really look at the true story that's going on in front of us, or we're going to get stuck in the 12th century mentality that a lot of people want to be in because they don't want to accept what's going on and they think their beliefs dictate reality and they don't. Nobody's beliefs dictate reality. Not mine, not yours. And I've had people say, well, I, not in my reality. Well, what's in your reality that's not in mine? It, oh, my parents are in my reality. No, Who, how do you know I don't know your parents? How do you know I can't meet your parents? You can't say just because you haven't experienced some aspect of reality that it doesn't exist. Well, the stuff sitting on Mars is 100% artificial constructions. The stuff in Utah is littered with all kinds of ancient artifacts and sculptures and things. And people look at it, oh, that's natural. That's, no, no, you can't have those many objects in the same area with that kind of detail and go, oh, that's just natural. This stuff is thousands of years old, is weathered. Mount Rushmore is going to look like the old man in a mountain at some point, thousands of years down the road. And they'll probably dismiss that, the generations that come along. Hey, Keith, yeah, coming I'm up sorry. to the top of the hour. You're all on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. That was Keith Morgan, who was our uh, <clears throat> valued IT expert, audio engineer, worked with Ted Koppel for 30 years, had a chance to uh, have conversations with Mr. Koppel about things that ultimately wound up on the show, including my work. And um, we will pick this up at an epistemological level when we reach the other side, which we will do right after this short break. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows 
that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.